Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome back to another great episode of the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and thanks again for tuning in. This week we are talking to the pond boss himself, Bob Lusk. That's right, guys, diving into all things water and pond habitat. A little bit different for us here, but you'd be surprised after uh, listening to this podcast how much this directly relates to the same sort of habitat we work on and talk about all the time. Uh, it's a very surprising and a very entertaining conversation. Bob's a, a great guy. I'm very happy to have him on the show here. The things we're going to cover are the five fundamentals of ponds. Number one being water. Number two being habitat. Food chain is number three. Genetics is number four. And number five, finally, is harvest. We cover these in detail on the show here with Bob. And uh, like, like I said, guys, this is a really great, entertaining episode. Um, I enjoyed it a lot, actually, and I don't even have a pond. Um, it was just very, very interesting stuff being, you know, I'm a fisherman too, so maybe that's why I loved it so much. But Bob Lusk, the pond boss, is on here in a minute. I'd like to touch on the great reviews we've been getting. Um, a couple, I know that Mark Allen just reached out to me on Facebook. We're getting him his decal. Guys, I'm having more decals made. So once I get these in, we'll get these out to these great reviews. Uh, and one recently, Ethan Hoggard said, I love this podcast. Helps me on my Missouri farm with the sheer diversity of topics covered by expert guests. I've listened to every episode at least once and some several times through. Ethan, thank you very much for that great review. I'm going to get a hold of you on Facebook and get you a detail for saying such nice words. Thank you, sir. Another one here by Don2112. 
doesn't matter if you have 5 acres or 500. This podcast gives you solid information for better deer habitat management. I usually learn something every podcast that helps improve my little 25-acre slice of heaven. Thank you. John, I couldn't agree with you more. I also learn something every single episode, if not multiple things, and uh, I like to apply that to my little 15-acre slice of heaven. So a lot in common there. Guys, Don and Ethan, thank you so much for those great reviews. These, these reviews are showing up, guys, on iTunes, on the podcast app. Please go on there, leave us a five-star review and a, a text rating as well. And we'd love to get you, uh, you know, a nice five-inch Habitat podcast decal. Thank you again for that. Next, guys, we want to talk about our sponsors. I know Lincoln Roan at the Packer Max line of Call to Packers has been pushing these things out. I know he was just over here near me where uh, – some of the drums are made, picking up a truckload. He's coming back uh, next week to get another truckload. Mossy Oaks picked them up, and they're really pushing the, the Packers. So I'd like to also encourage the listeners here to check out his website, packermax.com, and uh, you get $50 off any Packer just for mentioning the Habitat podcast. So be sure to take advantage of that free money, guys. Next we have uh, Nick Nation at the Habitat Hook. I have been walking a few properties recently, some that Nick has actually cut on in the past. Uh, Nick's been out there with his hook along with uh, this person, this property I walked. It's going to be a future episode, so I can't share it right this second. But Nick and his hook can get the job done when it comes to hinge cutting or uh, directly felling or directionally felling certain trees. So what I've realized is I need to get back in the woods, even though it's May, I need to get back in the woods and cut more. Um, There are certain areas that I need to work on for bedding areas in the habitat hook. I wouldn't even try it without it. I'm not just saying that, guys. If you've tried to directionally fell trees or uh, hinge cut them in a certain way, especially some bigger trees, this thing is a great tool. And if you mention the habitat podcast, you get 10% off the hook of your choice. I prefer the aluminum extendable uh, as it's just a really badass hook. So check them out, guys, at nationscreations.net or on Facebook. Next, we have Killer Food Plots. Nick Percy has been traveling the state. Uh, I think there were some food plot days he was just at up at Jay Sporting Goods here in Michigan. And also, I know he's been traveling around doing land consultations and helping people get their their spring orders in and spring food plot ideas, uh, you know, figured out. So if you have any questions on food plots, uh, give Nick a call. We're going to be doing a giveaway here real soon for a bag of his seed. Uh, So pay attention to that on Facebook. And also check him out at KillerFoodPlots.com. Like I said, a real high-quality seed I've been using for, I believe this is year five. So I I wouldn't push you guys in the wrong direction for a, a seed just because somebody says so. This stuff is a quality seed. I have seen it work. I do use it. Um, and I'm proud to continue to use it and be partnered up with that company. So next we have uh, Dip That Hydrographics. I spoke with Gabe a little bit earlier today. Seems to be on the mend, uh, doing better. I know uh, we're still helping promote Dip That Hydrographics. I'm not sure how much business uh, he's able to do right now. If he has some other employees helping him out. But check out their Facebook page. There's some really cool videos of some recent jobs on there uh, at Dip That Hydrographics on Facebook. Last but certainly not least, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. If you guys are like me, you've been out turkey hunting, chasing turkeys. Um, you know, it's the first season in Michigan here, just wrapped up. I was lucky enough to harvest a nice bird, 
10-inch beard time on uh, Saturday before the last day of the season. Uh, podcast guest Jason Lewis and I went out hunting together, and we were successful with a beautiful morning. But Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, all the guys over there have also been hammering these birds. Uh, right off the bat, Ryan killed one, and then his dad the next day. And all these are on film. So if you guys want to check out watching turkey hunting uh, right now, go to the MichiganWhitetailPursuit.com or the Facebook group, The Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. And all the videos are popping up on there, too. So we should check that out from turkey hunts that just happened within the last two weeks. All right, thank you very much for all the sponsors who helped make this show possible. I really can't do it without you guys, and I appreciate your support. But now let's get into the Pond Boss with Bob Lusk covering the five fundamentals of a proper pond. And, guys, we have Bob Lusk, the Pond Boss. How are you doing tonight, Bob? Holy cow, I'm doing great, guys. How about you? <laughs> doing well, doing well. <laughs> Very good, Pond Bob. Boss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Bob, thanks for getting on here tonight. We really appreciate it. We've been wanting to talk about ponds for uh, a while now. It's something we've never talked about here uh, on the podcast. We're 40-something episodes in and figured, you know, this is uh, an important subject that, you know, if you have property, a lot of people want a pond. And it's not as simple as, as digging a hole from what I've learned so far. Um, and you've been doing this for a while. Do you mind diving into your history where you're from, what you do for a living, how long you've been doing this, all that good stuff. Tell us a story about Bob and uh, and where you're at today. You bet. You bet. Um, I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas in a suburb. And when I was 14 years old, my parents bought a little place, a little river frontage on the Brazos River out west of Dallas-Fort Worth near Granbury. And that was the year that they impounded Lake Granbury. So that would have been 1969, so you can do the math on that. Uh, <laughs> a, long time, a long time ago. Well, I knew when I was 14 and we were roaming around in that river, I knew every rock, every stick up, every sandbar. And it was amazing to me to get out there during different times of the day and all through the night to see how the fish behaved. So I made up my mind when I was 14 I was going to make a living messing with fish. So that's what I did. And my... Uh, my father and his mother-in-law, my mom's mom, my grandmother, were in the real estate business, and they kind of expected me to do that. So when I was 19 years old, I had two years as a real estate salesman, and I was a broker, and I hated it because I was getting my butt kicked by all these bleach blonde women in their mid-30s because nobody's <laughs> going to buy a house from somebody 19 years old. <laughs> so, so I transferred to Texas A&M University and studied fisheries, Graduated from there in December of 79 and hung out of shingle and went into business in January of 1980. So I'm in my, started my 40th year as a private fisheries biologist. And by about, oh, probably by about 1984 or 85, I started to see a need out there where people were, baby boomers were coming of age where they had this little thing called disposable income. And they were buying up family farms and turning them into recreational properties. So kind of saw a niche that I might fit in, so I started helping people with their pond management stuff, and then, you know, stocking fish and feeding fish, and way back then in the 80s, I mean, there there, there was no pond management industry, that's all happened, I've watched it and helped it grow and been a big part of it, so now I travel the nation designing premier fishing lakes for people, 
And that's one of the fun things I get to do. So not only do I get to mess with fish, I get to work with some really great people, helping them manage the water on their land. You know, and you guys talk about habitat all the time. Well, I get to do the same thing with water while I study what they're doing with their habitat for their wildlife. So uh, about, oh, I guess about 1992, this outdoor writer came to me with an idea of, of having a newsletter. Now, back in 92, that was before Al Gore invented the Internet. You know, I think I, I, think I, had, a, I had a bag phone where I could call people from my truck. But, you know, information wasn't easy to come by. So that was the year that Pond Boss Magazine was born. And I've been a, a key player with Pond Boss Magazine since about 1992. So the two things I do now is travel the nation designing fishing lakes, and I publish the nation's leading uh, magazine on pond management, which is Pond Boss. And people can find that at pondboss.com. And then every Wednesday I do a Facebook Live broadcast about pond management topics. So I'm all about ponds, and I work with pond management companies all over the country. My, I had a pond management company. We just merged with American Sport Fish Hatchery out of Montgomery, Alabama. So I've kind of stepped back from the pond management side, let other people do that, but I get to go do all the fun stuff. Wow. That's quite the, the backstory. and It sounds like you've done uh, a great job and been successful. That's awesome. Um, now, when you say ponds, and then you said fishing lake. How big a how big of a a pond do you get yourself into? Well, you know, it's it's really fun. The biggest the biggest pond I've ever managed was a lake that I helped design in Mexico that covers about seven hundred acres. Holy cow! You know, but then when you when you start doing the math, you look around the nation. Just in Texas, where I live, there's one point two million private ponds and lakes just in Texas. And across the nation, there's somewhere between four and a half and six and a half million private bodies of water, you know. And it's a, a small fraction of those are managed. Well, with my little pond management company, we would take care of maybe 250 or 300 ponds a year, you know. And there's other companies around the nation now that, you know, weren't there 35 years ago. And I bet you if we started really drilling down into it, I bet less than – but less than 2% of the private ponds in the entire nation have some level of management. So there's a lot of room for people to learn more about it. And I'm thrilled to death to be able to share this time with you guys to kind of spread the gospel on pond management and let people know they can do some things and kind of throw some fundamentals out there for everybody. No, that's amazing. Um, kind of a little bit about our history. We, we've been talking about guys who are mainly – Hunters and fishermen who own recreational property or who are allowed to hunt on property that they can manage for better wildlife. And, and as you're probably aware, a lot of these, I'm sure, have ponds on them. Or if you're like me, you, you want a pond someday um, and maybe have a good spot for one, but don't really know where to get started. Now, if you yeah. fit into that, that category and need a little bit of help with this pond management stuff, where do you even start? Well, we start at the beginning. <laughs> you know, you know the, the fun thing about this recreational property is, you know, hunting has a season, but fishing really doesn't. So, you know, a lot of guys that either lease property or manage or own property, while they're all gung-ho and really, and they should be, in doing things to improve habitat, food chain, that sort of thing for their wildlife, if they've got a, a, a mud hole out there that they want to turn into a fishing pond, they can do that. So there's a couple of ways to come at it. 
Jared. There's um, if you want, then we go one direction. But if there's a the property's got a pond on it, then we go another direction. So where everything starts really is with the water. If you've got good, clean, healthy water, then you can grow some really good, clean, healthy fish. So there's really five fundamentals. Water's the first thing. Habitat's the next. The food chain's next. Great genetics is next. And then a harvest plan is the thing that kind of wraps it all up in a boat. So if there's not a pond or a lake on that property, what a lot of guys, matter of fact, I'm going to go meet with a guy in the morning, and he thinks he's got a place to build about a 15-acre lake on his property in southeastern Oklahoma. So I'm going to go tour that ranch with him, and I've already looked at the maps, and he's got a watershed big enough that when it rains during an average year, the watershed's big enough it can support a 15-acre lake. So if he's got good clay soils with which to build a dam, then we can, you know, there's there's two two phases to this if you're going to build a pond. One is you're going to build a structure that retains water. And the second part of the job is behind that dam or that structure is going to be a living entity that's going to be a lake or a pond. And okay. our job is to design that to where it fits the goals of that landowner and fits the watershed. Okay, and tell me a little bit more about fitting the watershed. What does that mean? Well, when it when it rains, water flows. And so what we have to do when we're looking at building a lake, like we'll just use this example. I studied where there's three small uh, temporary creeks that when it rains, you can study the topo maps and you can see what direction the water flows. And then you can calculate the area where that water flows from into the site that looks good to put a dam, and you can figure out how much water is going to flow into that site. As a rule of thumb, in that part of Oklahoma, uh, eight acres to ten acres of watershed where the water runs off and flows down into it can support about one acre of pond. Mm. So, he, so he's got about 130 acres that when it rains, it drains down, comes down the hills through the little tributaries, the little rivulets and all that into a creek that he wants to dam up. So he's got enough watershed where rainfall is adequate enough to fill his lake and keep it full most of the year. <clears throat> the size of the watershed dictates the size the lake's going to be. Now, that's pretty interesting stuff. I can imagine that would be uh, pretty fun to imagine and try to place on your property and, and work through all the details and try to figure out how to do that. That's awesome. Yep, it is. And then... You know, the next step is what kind of soils are there. If it's sand down 22 feet, well, sand leaks. So you got to find soils that have good clay content, you know, so you can build a barrier to keep the water from flowing through there because if it, if a dam leaks, there's no point in building a lake. You know, so you got, you got to have the right size watershed and the right kind of dirt. And then from there, you start designing you know, where the dam should be placed and how big should it be and how tall should it be. And then you got to design a spillway and then how much dirt is that going to take to build the dam and the spillway. And that's when you can start projecting costs. Okay. Okay, so say you you have the spot, you built the dam, you built the spillway, now you have some water flowing in. How do you know if you have good water Bad water, or or is there 
Is there such thing where the water can be too bad and you don't even want to do the project, or can you treat that? Most of the time you can tell if the water's good or not by the surrounding ponds. Okay. You know, if there's healthy ponds in that area. And the ponds, the ponds are going to be, the water's going to be a reflection of what the water flows through. You know, when, the, when, the, when it rains, all rainfall is acidic because it mixes with carbon dioxide as it flows through the air. And when it hits the ground, it's already slightly acidic. But once it hits the ground, water, scientists call water the universal solvent. Anything that can dissolve into water will. So when it hits the ground, it starts flowing through soils and over rocks and around trees and on limbs and, you know, and, and, and leaf litter in the forest. It's going to absorb stuff as it flows into the lake. And then any kinds of minerals or metals that are in the soil, they're going to dissolve into the water, and that's going to tell us whether it's good water or not. Very nice. And is there a way that you can do like a water test on that, like we would do a soil test on a food plot type thing? Yeah, you can do that after the water's been in the lake for a little bit. But uh, if if I ever think water's questionable, then we'll sample some water before we ever, ever build a lake, just from existing ponds or maybe down in the bottom of the creek. If there's a pool in the bottom of the creek, we'll sample that water and have it tested and just see what all's in it. And it's... I, 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 I think in, in the four, 40 years or so that I've been doing this, I, I think I've come across bad water one time. And we, wow. were able to amend, we were able to amend that water with some lime and some other minerals to be able to fix it. So even if the water's not perfect, there's things you can do to make it better. So, Bob, you talk about uh, habitat being part of your five fundamentals. Can you go into a little bit of that, explain that for our listeners? You bet. Now, to kind of wrap up the talk on water, if your water is, is happy, in other words, it's got the right minerals, the right metals, and it's healthy, the pH is, is within the right ranges, then that's the medium in which the fish live. So that's the first most important thing, but beyond that is habitat. You know, as goes the habitat, so goes what lives in it. So part of part of my job and the most fun part of the job, if you want to call it a job, is I get to design. <laughs> you know, habitat for fish. When you when you guys hear this, you're going to say, "Wow, this is parallel to deer." <clears throat> but you got you got you got to have the right places for fish to spawn. You got to have places where the babies can hide so they don't get eaten by something. You know, you got to have places for the bigger fish to be able to congregate. You need funnels where fish can migrate and people can find them. You know, you need places that they can uh, hide and loaf and rest. So what one of the big challenges is is to take a lake basin and create the very, very best habitat for all the different species of fish that we want and all the different sizes of those species of fish that we want. So, we know that bluegills spawn in colonies and they like to spawn in water six inches to two feet deep. So, that's why we put gravel beds on shallow flats. We also know that plants like to grow in water less than three feet deep, so we minimize three-foot depth of water, but we put it where we want it so plants can grow. We want some native plants to grow because that's where baby fish can hide. So, we put that close to the spawning beds. And then say we'll design a point or two points off in, in a five-acre lake, for example. We want those points because we know that's where big bass love to hang out on structure, 
in shallow water with quick access to deep water. So we're designing things for the big fish, and we're designing things for the small fish to help them be able to reproduce and to live their lives and grow big fish and for bass to have what they want. And, and it's, all, it's kind of an art. We take a little bit of science and use art, knowing what we've seen and learned over the years, to create the very best habitat underwater. I love it. No, that's awesome. And when you say a funnel, that perked my ears up right away. I, I see all kinds of stuff you're doing here. Now, what does the funnel mean exactly? <clears throat> well, I, let's say, for example, um, I'm going to tell you this. About 90% of the fish are going to live in 10% of a pond at any given point in time. But that 10% shifts with the seasons. Okay. So what we what we strive to do is we strive to create about 25% of a lake with habitat. So in other words, if we got a 10-acre lake, we want two and a half acres of that to have habitat. And that includes travel paths. So let's say we do that. We create that point where the water is shallow up close, but it drops off quickly, say, to 10 feet. We might put two trees perpendicular to that point where when bass come up to it, they have to swim right up to the point, and you can catch them easier. So we're doing that, doing that more for predictability of their behavior than for trying to create more fish. But from that point, they might want to travel to another point. So we'll, we'll put an underwater channel maybe five feet deep to simulate a creek and let it meander along the shoreline and then put two or three more big trees along that, that created creek bank, which forces the fish to swim in the creek channel when they're moving. So if you're fishing and you're not catching them off the point, they might be moving, and you and we've got it marked with buoys or duck decoys or something, where you know right where those trees come together and force them to go into that creek when they're swimming, and you can throw a crankbait out there, and if they're there, you can catch them while they're on the move. Oh, man. Wow. So you're talking about sinking the trees underwater to create structure and, and funnel them just like we would do with deer above ground. Same deal. <laughs> yep. uh, sometimes, it works. sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But yeah, same here, though. Fun trying, trying to figure it out. That's right. That's yeah. right. No, I, I have a, a buddy of mine who takes old Christmas trees and cuts out a couple sec sections of the tree as, as the tree spins around take out some at, at five foot, take out some at three foot, and he'll sink that vertically in his lake that he lives by, and he will uh, he has these marked with some visual points, and he goes out there in the wintertime and ice fishes and finds that some real nice crappie like to hang out around these man-made uh, fish houses, if you will. Bingo. So, That's exactly right. It works. That's exactly right. He's been doing it yep. for three or four years. I, I know it works. <laughs> That's awesome. He's he's catching crappie that other people aren't. I don't know if it's legal or not, but <laughs> who knows? Uh, yeah. No, I don't know why that would not be legal. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. It gives you, you know, and, and plus, another thing, you know, one of these fundamental things is you got to harvest fish. If you don't, nature's going to do it. You may not like how nature does it. Right. You know, when you when when you guys are talking about deer, you know you got to be culling the herd. you got to be working on the does and got to be preserving your best of the best and culling the ones that need to be culled. The fishery is the same way. You need to be culling fish at some point. Every 
every pond, every lake that you're managing as a fishery, look at it like a garden. You know, you're going you're gonna to plant it, you're going to nurture it, you're going to feed it. At some point, you got to harvest some fish. And if you don't, then everything stops. They don't, they don't grow like they should. They get stunted. So by him putting some Christmas trees out there and congregating those fish and catching some, catching some, that makes room for more to grow and even get bigger. Right. So that's a good thing. So that's, that's a good thing. It's a good thing until his neighbors find the same hole. That's the only thing. Yeah, well, that's, that, that's the risk he takes. So maybe he, need, he might he might need to put some more over there under their dock, and while they're fishing his, he can fish theirs. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, what else for a habitat do you tend to focus on? Are you talking? Do you ever plant different plants or or weeds down there? Well, what I what my nature is is <clears throat> just to see what what grows there naturally. Okay. And then I either like it or I don't. If if for aquatic plants to grow, you got to have three things coming together. You got to have the right temperature, you got to have food, and you got to have sunlight. If those three things come together, something's going to grow. So rather than trying to force nature to play my hand, I try to play nature's hand and see what grows in that water where the sun can penetrate. Then if I like that plant, we'll keep it. If I don't, then we'll replace it. You know, we can take them out with herbicides or cut them out or whatever and then come back in with some plants that we like. I love native plants. I don't like invasive plants. Right. So, you know, I love eelgrass, Valsinaria, they call it. I love uh, American pondweed, Illinois pondweed, even curly leaf pondweed. So I like that sort of stuff. There's some plants I don't care for. Coontail is a native plant, but it's so dead gum prolific and it migrates. So I don't particularly care for that. And then... I don't care for any of the exotics, you know, Eurasian water milfoil and hydrilla, things like that. You know, bass anglers love hydrilla in big lakes. I wouldn't give you a nickel for that stuff in private water. Right. It's too invasive. Too invasive. So, yes, I love aquatic plants. It's part of the system of habitat in a body of water. Matter of fact, I think it's critical to have that. If you've got some really good native plants, that's the nursery for baby fish to be able to hide coming off the nest. And here's the significance of that. We'll just shift gears into the food chain. It takes about 10 pounds of bait fish for a game fish to gain one pound. And when a, when wow. a, when a, when a nest of fish is hatched, like a little, say some little bluegills are hatched, about 12,000 of those weigh a pound. But if you can keep, so, you know, if you can keep those baby bluegills alive for 45 days, 30 of them make a pound, and now they're significant as a food source. Okay. So that that's where the aquatic plants come in, or rock piles, or places like that where they can get in and hide and feed and grow and get bigger and become more of a significant food source for the game fish. That's a big deal. Interesting. Now, on the, the food chain and, and the weeds, how those kind of relate together, in the lake that I live by, they treat for milfoil every three or four years. Is milfoil, you say it was an invasive? It is. That's one of the most invasive ones because it, it reproduces three different ways. I mean, you drive your boat through it and you chop it up. The fragments that you chop up with a trolling motor or an outboard motor are going to migrate across the lake, take root, and grow. Oh, great. They also have, seed, they also have seeds and rhizomes. Okay. So... 
they're so that plant is so prolific, and it's not native to the United States. It's Eurasian. <laughs> so uh, it's it's not a good plant. There are other plants that are way way better. So, but what happens with that plant is it tends to dominate and take over. And you guys know from your other habitat work that diversity is a big deal. If you've got diversity by having six or seven different kinds of aquatic plants that interact with each other and don't dominate each other, then you've got a community for a better fishery. But if Eurasian water milk oil is sucking the nutrients out of the water, sucking nutrients out of the soil and expanding out into greater depths because they clear the water up, now they're invasive and they're not helping your habitat at all. They're taken from it. But you also want a a weed base or something where the, the small bluegill can grow in. I've noticed that the fishing, uh, ice fishing in particular, seems to be affected uh, very greatly when they treat and then the years where it's coming back. It seems almost the fishing gets better the the years where it's coming back, and they treat again, and then the fish, maybe they school up, or, or I'm not sure what happens to them, but they're a lot harder to find. Um, I know they're still there, but they're a lot harder to find and fish for when they're treated. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does, because what happens is as that plant starts to, to grow again, it starts to take up more space. There's there's a balance where the fish, are, it's actually healthy for the fish. But then after two years or three years, then it becomes so invasive that there's so many bait fish that aren't accessible by the game fish that it's a nuisance. But what happens is the fish become conditioned to that habitat, and then when it all goes away at once, they're kind of lost. It's like they're roaming around in the desert. They don't know where to go because yep. they grew up in that. You know, most of those fish that you're talking about may not may only be three or four years old. That's all they ever knew. So when that stuff goes away, now it's kind of like they're blind and they don't know where to go. You know, which means maybe your neighbor, your buddy ought to bring some Christmas trees over for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's told, me, he's told me that a couple times. I, uh, I need to get out there and do it, that's for sure. Um, no, that makes yeah. perfect sense when you put it that way, and, uh, and I appreciate the perspective. Um, and not to interrupt you on, on the food chain subject, so please continue on, Bob, about the food chain. Well, different types of fish have different food requirements, like largemouth bass. I mean, they'll eat anything that fits in their mouth that's moving. Um, I have, I've come across, I'll never forget, I, I, I've got an electrofishing boat that we use to sample fish populations. And we were shocking along one time in upstate New York, and we uh, were shocking up all these little cookie-cutter carbon-toppied bass that were maybe 12 to 14 inches long and five or six years old. They were all pretty thin, but one of them had a big bulge belly. So when we started working those fish, weighing and measuring and logging them down and, you know, getting our stats and stuff, I grabbed that fish and looked at it, looked down the throat, and there were two feathers sticking out of its throat. That that fish had snagged a uh, barn swallow as it it swept down to get some water to go up and build a nest. No way. You know, I've seen them. Yeah, yeah. I've seen them with with snakes in in their bellies. I've seen them with frogs and turtles. But the primary food chain for largemouth bass in most of the nation are bluegills, especially south of the Mason-Dixon line. Bluegills spawn three to five times per year, especially in the south. 
So they're the go-to backbone of the food chain for largemouth bass. Okay. But if we don't provide if we don't provide the food chain for the bluegills, they're not going to thrive either. They they're predator fish, limited by the size of their mouth. So we got to make sure they've got what they need to eat as well. So mm. it's kind of a delicate balancing act, especially when you got to have ten pounds of bait fish at each level of the food chain to grow a pound at the next level up. So we got to have, for every pound of bluegills, we got to have 10 pounds of little bitty fish, small crawfish, bugs, things like that, for them to gain weight, or we can feed them. And, uh, oh, wow. I love, to, I, I love to use Purina's fish foods because they develop fish foods specifically for sport fishing ponds. So uh, the food chain, you know, diversity with that is important as well. And it kind of depends if you want to stock walleye, you know, or if you want to stock smallmouth bass or largemouth bass or tiger muskies, each one of those species of fish has a little bit different food requirements, and some of that's based on how old they are. You know, a 4-inch bass feeds differently than a 14-inch bass. So we're trying to juggle the habitat and then juggle the food chain so that the predator fish don't overeat it, and we've got all the different pieces of the food chain in there. But the backbone of the food chain are bluegills, you know, fathead minnows help jumpstart a brand new pond, but we don't use them in an existing fishery. You know, so all these different fish play different roles in the food chain. Okay, and it might be a good time to ask this question. I heard you talk about it on one of your live events in the past, uh, I think right around Christmas time. Um, you mentioned that there was a, some research done, a study done, on some lake somewhere, I don't know the details, but all the 10-inch bass that were studied, 10-inch or above, I believe they were not eating the tilapia. Are you familiar with this study I'm talking about? I'm real, real familiar with that study. And does this have to do with the food yeah. chain and, like, and like the, the cause and effect <clears throat> of pond issues and lake issues versus, you know, the, the problem being the problem or the symptom of a problem? Can you relate yes. to that for us? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked that. In that particular study lake, it's 125 acres, and each year we would we would stock tilapia in there. Tilapia in Texas are legal, and they're a good idea in the right situation. Well, the situation is that they eat that they eat filamentous algae, and they reproduce prolifically. But the scientists that did that study pulled out bass that were 10 inches and bigger and didn't and out of studying 2,000 bass in that lake only found tilapia in the bellies of two bass so his recommendation to the landowner was to not stock tilapia anymore because they weren't effective but the reality is that those that those tilapia are so productive that their babies were actually feeding baby bluegills which increased the survival rate of the baby bluegills and so even though the bass didn't directly benefit from those tilapia, their food benefited from the tilapia. And the scientists missed that. And so now, now you know, it's going to be interesting to see what they come up with about survival rates of baby bluegills. Because every time we use tilapia in the south, we see survival rates of baby bluegills go up, which means we've got more bait fish going into the wintertime than we would without the tilapia. So that's one of those cause and effect deals where I think they missed it. Well, it sounds like a, a good thing, unless I'm totally missing the boat here. Is that a good thing to have more bait fish going into the wintertime? 
You bet it is. It is. But what, see, the assumption they made was that since the bass weren't eating tilapia, the tilapia didn't have a, a purpose. To take them out, right, or, or don't stock right. them anymore, so which is a mistake. Don't stock them anymore. That's right. Because Yeah, so he considered it a mistake. But the reality is those tilapia are feeding on filamentous algae, converting that to flesh, and baby tilapia were being eaten by medium-sized bluegills to increase their survival rates, which gave us more bluegills going into the fall than we would have had if we didn't. And if you look at it this way, if tilapia have 100,000 babies and bluegill have 100,000 babies, there's 50% odds that the bluegill are going to do better because okay. there's, there's so much more bait fish out there to feed everybody. So the bluegill mm-hmm. numbers of three to three to four-inch bluegills going into the fall went up every year compared to years past. And that, that particular scientist missed it. Darn him. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that's, uh, that's just very interesting. I heard you say that. That's something that I'm glad I'm not a scientist because I probably wouldn't have caught that. Um, now, before we get into genetics, are there any other examples that we should mention, maybe with weeds or, or algae, where you see an issue and you re- and you might need to realize that the issue is coming from something else and you may want to, you know, attribute that to a symptom versus an issue and how to treat it? That's a good question. You bet. Um, It reminds me of a call I got five or six years ago from a a man near Houston that has a shallow lake, and it, it was choked up with aquatic plants. So he decided to use herbicides to take out those aquatic plants, which worked, but 18 months later, his lake was muddy. Well, because what he didn't realize was he had gizzard shad in there, and gizzard shad loved to root around in the mud. And by taking out those plants, it opened up some shallow areas for gizzard shad to thrive, and they muddied up his lake. So the, 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 the cause and effect thing there that he didn't think about was the plants are a nuisance, so if I take them out, things are going to be better. What he didn't know, that he didn't know, was he was going to create a whole different problem. So I think it's a smart thing for people that have ponds and even, you know, other wildlife stuff. you got to think beyond the obvious. you got to think beyond. When I make, every time you make a choice to do something proactively, there's, nature's going to cause a reaction. And if you can figure out what that reaction is and you like it, then do it. I got a call today from a guy from Florida that's got a three-acre pond. He's got four fish feeders on it, and he started seeing some little white spots on his fish, and he was worried about them. Well, he's fed them so well, and they've grown so well, and he hasn't harvested any. Now I suspect that his water quality is deteriorating because he's overfeeding his fish. So if he doesn't do something about his water quality, he runs the risk of killing all those fish he's been feeding for five or six years. Jeez. And and will will those fish go back to to normal or are they deformed or, or how does that happen? And I have a follow up question to that too about what you can okay, find on a fish, but go ahead. It, it, it circles back to the happy water. So what he's doing is he's pushing his pond so hard that it's overproducing what nature would normally allow. Which a lot of guys do that. You know, but if he's not keeping his water clean and healthy and happy, it's almost like they're swimming in their own sewage. 
Right. You know, so so he's got to uh, kind of okay. he's kind of got to put the brakes on and back up a little bit and allow the water to cleanse itself. Water's got a magic way of cleansing itself. You know that water's always on the move. People don't think about that, but we don't keep water; we borrow it. You know, and when we have it and we're good stewards of it, we're doing what we can to keep it clean by helping it move. We can move it with aeration. We can move it with circulators. You know, water's one of those things that defies gravity. It's going to evaporate and go. Or it's going to flow. It's going to move laterally. It's going to move downhill. But while you've got it and you've got it as captive as you can hold it, if you can move it and allow it to contact the, the surface of the atmosphere as well as the sun, it can break down some of those extra nutrients and get them back into where they can be cycled into something that's healthy, like healthy aquatic plants, for example. So I think that's kind of that's the issue that he's going to have to be dealing with. Okay, and my follow-up, we had this pond we were allowed to fish in college. It was probably a 10-acre a lake, and uh, this older gentleman just let us go out there. We were having the time of our lives nailing these bluegill. I mean, all afternoon, having a couple of pops and just catching these giant fish. And we kept a bunch of them for a fish fry as he let us. And every single one of those fish had little tiny black spots on the skin and in and throughout the meat. It was almost like a little tiny egg or something. Uh, have you heard of that before? I'm sure yeah. you have. I'm sure yeah. you have. What is that? Yeah. <laughs> we ate them, so we ate them. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's okay to eat them, but the thing is, what those are, they're little bitty parasites, like they call them little black grubs, and you typically see those in July, August, September. Yep. You'll also see little yellow knots, like at the base of the fins, and sometimes in the flesh. Well, when when I hear that, I automatically know that that pond has got a fair amount of aquatic plant growth in it, because the primary host for those parasites or snails. Oh. Snails live in, live in water where there's a lot of plants that they can feed on. So the solution to that would be to stock some fish that eat snails. So if you're in the northern part of the country, that would be pumpkin seeds. You know, if you're in the, oh, the Midwest or South, that's red ear sunfish because that's what they eat is snails. So that, that goes circles back to the fish that have a purpose. Every fish has a purpose, and as long as that purpose fits what you want, Use it. Red ear sunfish are, are a great choice because they eat snails, which is the primary host of those parasites. Fish are secondary hosts, but they're also a good bait fish and they're fun to catch. They'll get up to be 12, 13 inches long sometimes, weigh two and a half pounds. Oh, they're right. So that's an yep, yep. So, and pumpkin seeds are the same thing. They don't get quite as big, but they're they'll they'll feed on snails quite a bit. So that was the problem. The problem wasn't the parasites the problem was there were snails in the water wow so bob, bob walk us through genetics and, and how we go about determining that and and what we could do to control it well brian the thing about genetics is just think of just parallel with deer i mean you're not going to bring deer from canada to south texas you know because even though they might have the genetics for superior growth and bigger antlers they're not going to acclimate to that part of the planet. Well, <clears throat> just because you, know, you want to grow double-digit largemouth bass, you know you got to have some Florida genetics in that because that's just the way it is. 
No, but <laughs> you, you just you just it's it's hard to take Florida genetics and move them very far north. So what some okay. of the hatcheries have done is they they've crossed Florida strain fish with northern strain fish and create an F1 cross that can weather the the colder climates better. You know, with bluegills, copper nose bluegill, boy, that's a big favorite in the south, and those things will grow over two pounds. But you take one to Iowa, and it's going to shiver itself to death and not perform. But you can take okay. some of the some of the native strains of bluegill that are in Iowa and move them over into eastern Ohio, and they can do great. So what I tell people is is zero in on the best genetics of the fish hatcheries in your neck of the woods and use those genetics. You know, because you can't just can't just think about how big the fish might be because it's got Florida genetics or copper nose genetics or whatever. You've got to figure out what's best suited to your geography. And there's some really, really good, really good strains of fish that are not, you know, within 100 miles of where you live that have good genetics. So, okay. So basically, basically the, the bulk of the genetic work is going to be done up front when you're stocking the Body of water. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly okay. right. Now, but it's it's not unusual for us to come back in in four to six years and stock a different strain to add variety to those genetics. You know, one of the one of the things that fisheries guys argue about is inbreeding, which I don't really buy into that. I think once you've got Florida genetics that a certain percentage of the offspring have the aggressive nature and the propensity to grow larger if they get the opportunity. But when a female largemouth bass lays 50,000 eggs, half of those are males that aren't going to get very big, and the other half are females, and will the best of the best make it to adulthood? You know, that's not a genetic thing. That's an environmental thing. So I do think it's a good idea to enhance genetics from time to time just to make sure that you don't lose any time and you can bring in some new stock, kind of like, kind of like changing bulls in the herd on a on a cattle ranch. Okay, so the reputation of a um, like an Iowa for a for a big whitetail. Why is that? Well, because that's that's what's excelled over eons in that part of the planet. You know, when you go to the hill country of Texas and you look at a deer and it's a little bigger than a German shepherd. You know, that that is just hundreds of years of that environment with those genetics. And you can take, you know, you can take some deer from Iowa and bring them into a similar climate, and they're going to thrive. But, you know, the climate in Florida is totally different. And if you take those fish from Florida and move them to Texas, they're going to do great because the latitude is similar. The environments can be similar. You know, some of the largest largemouth bass ever caught are in California, and they're Florida genes. Hmm. You know, so okay. those fish were transplanted, but it was all about the climate and the geography. Now, Bob, what do you say about guys who go to the lake and fill up a five-gallon bucket full of crappie and bluegill and take them back home to their pond and, and dump it in? Well, I think... People still think that fish, pecans, and watermelons are free. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to hear your you respond know, on this. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not. Where, you know, it, it's one of the frustrating things to me is somebody may go spend 
$60,000 to build a nice four-acre pond, and then they go to their neighbor's place and catch some stunted bass that are six years old and put them in that pond and expect them to do well, and they won't. You know, there's a, there's a process. you got to start with the food chain in a brand-new pond. And if you stock the right fish and give those fish the right food chain, they're going to grow up and reproduce and build a food chain. And then if you stock some fingerling bass or other game fish into a pond, on top of a healthy food chain, they're going to thrive and they're going to grow and they're going to just succeed beyond your expectations. Where you got to start off with the right species and the right number to get the results you want. And the sad part about it, when somebody does bucket biology like that, they won't know they screwed up for three years. And by that time, they got they got to unpickle the pickle instead of trying to catch some great fish. Because odds are, if the, neighbor's, if the neighbor's willing to give them to you, why? Right, right. <laughs> just, just because he's a nice guy might, might be one reason. But, you know, most of the time, ponds that have been there for a while, most of the time they have a stunted bass population without nearly enough food because people just don't know that they need to be calling some bass over time. So I, I discourage people from doing the bucket biology thing because they don't get the numbers right, they don't know the ages of the fish, and by the time they figure out, they're behind, and they're behind by years, not just behind by fish. Okay. Wow. And, you know, you know, and on that $60,000 that they spent to build that four-acre pond, they could have spent $2,000 on the fish and done it right. Okay. So instead, of going to get, instead of getting $50 worth of fish in a bucket and hoping they get it right. No, I, I fully get it. And, and say you do do it right and you start off and, and you grow and you, you have the best genetics you can. And I was listening to, I think, the Mediator podcast recently where there's a guy in Kentucky, I'm not sure if you heard about this, where he grew, I believe, uh, he grew like the state, the new state record crappie in, in a pond, and it counted for the new state record based on the laws, etc. But um, what do you think about something like that, doing it totally right, quote unquote, and then uh, being able to grow that record size fish? Well, if you want one fish, go get it. There you go. You know, because that's, that's pretty much what's happened, I would bet, because, I mean, um, I, I saw whether it were a state record crappie in Kentucky. Matter of fact, it might have been a world record that was caught, but uh, and I was fascinated with it. But I know this, that crappie in small waters inevitably won't work. You know, you got to have 15 or 20 acres worth of water for crappie to really be dynamic enough to where you can have an ongoing population of fish that would be big enough and fun to catch. You know, a lot of, a lot of times these state records are a fluke. When I say a fluke, what I mean is the stars lined up right. The odds of that fish getting in that size, you and I have greater odds of getting struck by lightning than that fish had to get to that size. Wow. wow. Because wow. It had, it had to have the genetic propensity. It had to have the food it needed every day. It needed to have the opportunity. And if all those things come together, then it works. 
you know, and that's why state records make the news. I mean, the, the state record largemouth bass in Texas is 18.18 pounds caught 27 years ago. You know, why, why, why hasn't that record been broken? Right, right. You know, you know, most of the time people that have a pond, they really, if, if they, if they catch a big fish, it's a bonus. You know, most of the time they want a good, healthy pond with a harvestable population of fish that's thriving and healthy. That's what they want. Yeah. And that's that's not hard to do. That's easy to do. As long as you have happy water, great habitat, excellent food chain, decent genetics, and you're willing to harvest a few fish. Okay, good segue there. Let's talk about the harvest. Say you have the ponds, you built it, you put the genetics in, you've been monitoring the water, um, everything's happy. You're even feeding the fish. And, and, and you want to go ice fishing in the winter and, and have a fish fry. How do you know what to harvest, how much to harvest, etc.? Great question. It's based, I, I'll come at you from two different directions. It, first of all, it's based on your goals. So if your goals are to have a well-balanced fishery with the opportunity to grow some really big fish, then you want to protect your big fish and harvest your medium-sized fish. And let's just take largemouth bass because that's the most commonly managed fish in North America in the waters, especially in the Midwest and the South. <clears throat> Those fish, in, in a, in a well-managed pond, you might have 60 to 90 pounds of bass per acre of water. So that means you can harvest 20 to 30 pounds of bass per acre every year safely because you're going to have that many more grow back up into that slot that you harvest. So if you're trying to protect your big bass, that's when you start with a slot limit after about the third year or the fourth year. So you, you, you start culling bass, say, in the 12 to 15 inch size range after three years because you're catching the young of the year fish that are now two years old, and you start taking out 25 or 30 pounds of those each year and eat those. If one of your goals is to grow two-pound bluegills, you want to preserve your biggest bluegills, but there's no reason you can't eat the next size down because they're going to come back in with young of the year. They're going to fill that slot. You know, it's just like if you if you shoot two does for every buck, how long does it take to get the ratios back in balance? You know, it's a, at some point you get there. But the way the other direction I was going to take you is you weigh and measure some fish. At some point, like for example, a 14 inch bass should weigh one pound seven ounces. If your 14-inch bass weigh one pound two ounces, they've lost weight. So mm. if you know, if you're weighing and measuring some fish as you go, you can begin to see fish that are topping out and not gaining any more weight and starting to level off and maybe lose a little bit of weight. That's when you know it's time to harvest some fish. Okay. okay. Now, is does that 1.7, does that change for the, the demographic north or south or east or west? Not really. Really? Uh, wow. That, no, not really. Uh, a 10-inch bass should weigh 10 ounces. A 12-inch bass should weigh 12 ounces. You know, a 14-inch bass should weigh 1 pound 7 ounces. 16-inch bass is 2 and a quarter. An 18-inch bass is 3 and a quarter. Now, when they – I'll tell you how they do change. They change based on the season. You know, a, a pre-spawn female is going to be wildly overweight. 
True. But two weeks two weeks after she spawns, she's going to be wildly underweight. So there's kind of a standard that we look at, and those numbers I just spit out right there is the standard. And yep. as long as your fish are within about 5 to 8% of those weights, they're considered normal. You know, but what you start seeing are trends. When you start seeing the, the, the weights of your bass that are 12 to 14 inches long begin to decline, you know they're overeating their niche in the food chain, and it's time to start culling some of those. Interesting. Um, you just reminded me of another question with the pre-spawn female comment. Uh, fishermen asking a fisheries biologist, why is Lake Erie so amazing for walleye? Have you ever uh, read into that or have you heard about that? Yes. I'm sure and you it's have. Also You've been doing it for 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's the, that's the same Lake Erie when I was a kid that caught on fire. Correct. Yeah. Because, <laughs> well, to, to your so point about blue. water being such a good um, solvent that it's always moving and that it recycles, I mean, that's exactly your point. Well, I don't know if you guys know this or not. You probably do, but uh, 20% of the world's fresh water flows through the uh, the Great Lakes chain and wow. you know, over Niagara Falls. So that water is constantly on the move and constantly changing. So with some of the steps put in place back in the 70s and 80s to stop pollution, that's allowed those lakes to cleanse themselves a lot more. And to answer your question, it's let me do it this way. If, if I said, hey, guys, let's go fishing where we got a shot at catching a double-digit largemouth bass, where would we go? We, we'd probably go to Lake Fork or Santee Cooper or uh, Kentucky Lake or something like that. If I said, let's go, let's go try to catch some uh, stripers, well, you'd walk out my back door, go 15 minutes, and you catch the stripers in Lake Texoma. Nice. Well, the reason... The reason walleye are thriving in Lake Erie is because Lake Erie has the perfect habitat and the perfect food chain set up for those fish to thrive. And that's why they're thriving. And it's the same thing with smallmouth. You know, with all the all the rocky cover and the and the food chain that grows up in the shallows of the coves and things of Lake Erie, that's why smallies do so well in Lake Erie. Yes, they and do. the same thing. And it, I mean, if you want to go trolling... You know, 90 feet deep or 30-pound lake trout, where are you going to go? You're going to go one lake over to Lake Ontario, you know, because it's got everything it needs for those fish to thrive, and it circles back to the right healthy water, the best food chain, good genetics, and perfect habitat for those fish. They're a byproduct of the clean water and great habitat and an adequate food chain, or they would not thrive. Wow, that explains it. Now, Bob, is there anything else that that we should cover for for pond and lake biology one on one tonight? I know we've we uh, dove into the five fundamentals here and a bunch of great other offshoots. Uh, is there anything else that we're missing? Well, one of the things to know is once you understand the fundamentals, you can drill down into each piece of that puzzle as far as you want to. I mean, we can start talking. You know, things about habitat that people don't think about. You know, when you talk about food chain, things people don't think about. And it's almost always based on their goals. Job number one with somebody with a pond is set some goals. 
if you don't if you don't set goals, you're not going to hit them. <laughs> no, I I, you know, I agree I, with that. Yeah. If if you don't have a target, you can't create a pro a program to hit it. So job one is to set goals. Job two is to assess where you are with your time. Does it have clean and happy water? Does it have good habitat? Does it get have have good food chain? And those and by the way, those things are in that order. The okay. water is most important. Then the habitat's next. Then the food chain is next. Then genetics are next. Then harvest is next. If you don't if you don't have good habitat, the fish that you want to reach your goals, then you can forget about the food chain and the genetics and harvest because it isn't going to work. So this is a this is a process and a progression that starts with the water, then it goes to habitat, then it goes to the food chain, and on down that line. And I think if people understand that, that that's the cycle, then they're going to be more likely to be successful. So set goals, then evaluate where you are, and then add the things that are missing in that order, and the fish are going to respond to that. They're going to respond to it really, really well. Okay, and Brian, anything else on your end? I know you had some topics and questions you wanted to ask. Let's uh, let's hit those. Sure. Now, Bob, a lot of our listeners have uh, smaller properties like the Midwest and the Northeast. We we don't have the large branches and tracts of land. What could you give us a? Uh, I mean, if there is like a, a starter size or type of fish that would be good for somebody, say, with like 15 to 40 acres? Is there is there like a, a minimum-sized pond that they should, you know, not even waste their time if they're going to go too small? You know, we've I've even got some ponds that are a tenth of an acre that we've got under management. They're like 60 feet wide and 80 feet long, you know, and, and we can grow okay. some really, really nice bluegill in there. You know, we can grow some really nice catfish in there. Uh, hybrid bluegill, sometimes that's a good choice. You know, so even small bodies of water, and, and i tell you something I like about small bodies of water, a half-acre pond or a three-quarter acre pond, if you don't like the direction it's going, you can change it in one day. You can go in and okay. harvest a whole bunch of fish and replace those in one day. You know, so small bodies of water like that are easy to manage, and they're not expensive to manage either. So the majority of the ponds in America are small, you know, less than three acres. And those are really, really fun and really easy as long as your goals are reasonable. You're not going to grow a giant crappie in a 10-acre pond, but you can grow enough bluegills that if you want to harvest 50 or 60 of them over the course of a year, you can do that. So small waters, yeah, you can manage those. Okay. And what kind of depths are we talking about for, like, northern places like Pennsylvania, New York? What kind of depth will we have to have for something that small? Well, the, the, thing about, the thing about depth, and you're talking about northern states, one thing that you guys are subjected to that we're not in the south is winter kill. And winter kill happens in ponds because there's too much plant growth or there's too much microscopic algae growth. So depth is important there because um, I'm going to say 12 to 15 feet of water in Pennsylvania and upstate New York and, you know, in that same latitude over toward Ohio. If you've got water 12 to 15 feet deep, that's deep enough. 
Uh, I don't think you need water much deeper than that. You don't need water much more shallow than that. Okay. So if you've got like a portion of that should be 12 to 15 foot deep. Yes. 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 Okay. And I tell you this, to, to prevent winter kill, every, the things you do during the when ice is off, that's going to help you to determine or predict whether you're going to have winter kill. So you you know you can't let that pond get too vegetated. So if you if you want some ha- some dense habitat for babies, then you need to put something in there that's inert. You know some plastic PVC pipe or some. There's a product called Mossback fish attractors that are outstanding for small bodies of water like that as well. So use use something that's not living, not plants that are living. So you can minimize the risk of a winter kill. You know, and the, move the water. Have circulators in small ponds like that. The more you move it, the more the organic matter can break down. You decrease the risk of, of winter kill every winter. Okay. Now, just strictly speaking, bass probably one of the more popular fish. It's like like we all like to chase whitetails. What what would be sort of like a minimum standard for somebody wanted to catch some decent bass on their farm? If they want to catch and harvest some decent bass, I want to say the pond needs to be a couple acres or bigger. You know, in, okay. in, in, in a, in a two-acre pond, you'd be calling 25 to 50 pounds of bass per year, and that's not a whole lot. You know, if, now if you want to put them in there and name them, two acres <laughs> is plenty big. <laughs> okay, and um, what about funding. Uh, I know a lot of states have some help for different landowners for uh, putting in wetlands and waterlands. Is there anything on the federal level or the local level that you're familiar with that some of our listeners could look into? There, There is, and you've got to be talking to your USDA office. Now, here's the caveat to that. Most of those, most of those limited funds are available for erosion control and conservation. <clears throat> but now, here's the thing that, that people don't know. Most of the time, when a federal agency gets involved, they're going to over-engineer that pond, and then they're going to cost share with you, and you're going to get a 1099 at the end of the year. Oh, so you're okay. going to be paying income tax on the money they gave you to build that pond. So I, most landowners that I work with that can afford to have a pond, don't really want to work with federal agencies because of that, that fact sense. right there. Because they're gonna they're gonna over engineer it, overbuild it, and you could probably build it for half the money working with a private, you know, earth mover or pond designer. Okay. But now uh, uh, the, answer is, the answer is yes, there's some funds out there, but I don't I don't go looking for them. <laughs> Um, like the difference between, like, say, a dugout and a dam, is that all terrain-related, or is that uh, just depending on where, where you want to put it, or how does that determine that? Yeah, that's site-specific. Like, when you get down in south Louisiana where the land's flat, almost every pond there is excavated. And the, the thing about excavated ponds is when you dig a yard of dirt, you get a yard of water, you know. And that's not nearly as efficient if you can find a creek, dam up a small creek or a small tributary, and back water up. It's a lot more cost efficient. But to answer your question, 
it's site specific. So you gotta you gotta look at that site and then determine what that site will let you do and what nature will let you do, and then then you do the, your due diligence to figure out what it would take, and then decide whether you're going to do it or not. Okay, Jared, did you want to cover anything else? You know, I think I'm good for now. I mean, we covered a lot, Bob, in the last hour. Is there anything else you want to hit before we wrap this up? No, I think this is a I think this is a really good primer that people can listen to several times and really drill down into the fundamentals. It's a great place to start because the next step would be to kind of start getting specific about each one of those different topics and then start talking about things that people should do or pe- things people shouldn't do. So that's a topic for another conversation. And plus, if people want more information, they can find me at pondboss.com and on our Pondboss Facebook page as well. And I'm real responsive. If they want to send an email to me, send it to bobalusk at outlook.com, and I'll be real happy to answer as many questions as I can. Bob, I just want to say that was an extremely interesting conversation, and I'd love to talk with you again to dive deeper into some of the fundamentals here. So thank you very much. Uh, you, you already gave your information on where to find you, so I don't need to handle that. Thanks for that as well, and thanks for coming on. You bet, Jared, Brian, thanks for having me, guys. This was a whole lot of fun, fast pace. I can't believe it's already been an hour. You guys are doing great work, and it's been a thrill to hang out with you guys. Thank you, Bob. You are as well. Uh, Thank you, Bob. Keep remaining the boss of the pond industry. Doing, doing a good job. <laughs> I got it, man. All right. Thanks a lot, fellas. Adios. All right. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. All right, guys. Another episode of the Habitat Podcast in the books. Brian, I don't know about you, but... I am way more amped up than I thought I'd be talking about ponds. Oh, blown away. And and the the parallels between fish and pond habitat to what we're doing with the whitetails is it's it's unbelievable. It's almost identical. I never expected that. Yeah, it truly is. I mean the the habitat, the the genetics, the harvest, the the food chain. I mean, the plant species, we didn't even get into the fertilization and all that stuff, but it was very, very cool stuff, and I could see myself in another life or later in life getting into something like that. That's very cool. I was extremely interested to talk about that. Something I always wanted to do, whether it be for fishing for bass or attracting some waterfowl to my farm, it's definitely been on the radar, and that's how I came across Bob's website and the Pond Boss Forum, and I encourage all the listeners to go there and spend some time. You'll find yourself spending a lot of time on there. It's just fascinating, just like the conversation we just had with him. Yeah, that hour went by very fast, and, and Bob's, you know, good old southern boy. I just love talking to him. Uh, I think... Uh, I think it's a podcast as well, if I saw that on his website correctly. I know he does Facebook Live episodes um, once a week on Wednesday nights where he goes into a lot of information there, too. So just uh, this is a great conversation, for sure. Definitely. Well, guys, I wanted to thank the listeners for coming back again. If you liked what you were hearing here tonight, we are going to dive further into ponds, so be sure to to pay more attention as we move along throughout the summer, spring and summer here. 
Go online, leave us a review if you can, Facebook, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts at. I want to thank our sponsors, The Habitat Hook, Killer Food Plots, Packer Max, Line of Cult of Packers, Dip That Hydrographics, and the Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. Thank you guys, our partners and friends, for uh, supporting the podcast. Couldn't do it without you guys. We really appreciate the support. Uh, lastly, guys, if you want to find the rest of our episodes, you can go to HabitatPodcast.com. While you're on the domain, on the website there, drop your email address in. We're doing giveaways for guys who submit their email address. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you can get a podcast, we should be on there. If you have any feedback... It's also on iHeart, too. Oh, iHeartRadio. That a boy. I... Uh, I thought I submitted for that, but it, it was kind of weird for a while to, to figure that out, so I'm glad we're up. Yeah, we're on there. That's awesome feedback. And if you haven't been paying attention, guys, Brian has been putting some kick-ass work on YouTube and the Facebook videos. So go find us online. We'll be back next week with another great episode of the Habitat Podcast. Thanks for following along as we become better Habitat. Habitat.